0: if you've been told to pull up your socks then make sure it's a pair of tnt socks the tnt shop is now open at tntradio.live when the whole world seems turned upside down we sort through it together weekends with jason olborn
1: on today's news
0: talk tnt
1: hello and welcome to the sunday edition here at tnt radio of the show weekends with me jason olborn i'm delighted to have your company and you've tuned in at the exact right time. I tell you what, today is going to be one of the best shows that we've planned since we've started the weekend's edition here. Goodness me, we've had a ripper and a run of all sorts of amazing people, filmmakers, authors, We've had um, uh, all sorts of uh, news journalists, et cetera, people from all walks of life telling their stories. And today we're going to delve into a brand new space here on this show because my first guest coming up in a moment will be the crime editor for the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, Mark Morrie. He'll be on in just a moment. And in the second hour, we're going to have a geologist, Professor Ian Plymer, to talk about a number of different issues that have come up and would you believe that in Ireland they're going to cull 200,000 cattle to meet their climate targets? Goodness me, are we the carbon that is meant to be removed in all of this? How do you feed the people if you're going to cull the cattle? And in the third hour today, David Shipley, a man who started life as anyone else would be. He would uh, go and get a job, become a forklift salesman. He would get involved with uh, corporate finance and even produce a film. And then one day he commits a fraud fraud. And six years later, he's sentenced to three years and nine months behind bars in the UK. And he will be here to tell his story and how he is now a prison reformer, realizing that the rehabilitation process that goes on is pretty much non-existent. And it's a frightening tale of people that should not be behind bars. And we'll hear from someone who's been on the inside. So a big roundup, of course. And I hope that you enjoyed yesterday's show. We had a ripper as well there. And you can check out those episodes on Rumble, YouTube, via our website. Or, of course, you can download the podcast on the many different access ways, including Podbean there. And, of course, I encourage you to get the app on your phone uh, and listen to us in the car on Bluetooth. Once you go to TNT, you never want to go anywhere else. Well, let me introduce you now to our first guest for today. Mark Murray, as I said, is the Sydney crime reporter for the Daily Telegraph crime editor. He started his career as a cadet reporter for the Daily Mirror in 1980, working on crime from gangland murders of the 1980s to the Father's Day bikey massacre. I bet people are starting to think of all the stories that they've heard in those years. He won the Kennedy Award for Scoop of the Year for his coverage of the arrest of Roger Rogers, and in 2014 it was also nominated for a Walkley Award for the Exposé on Roger. Well, let's bring him in right now. Mark Maury, welcome to Weekends. Yeah, good to be here. Look, Mark, I uh, really appreciate your time and I know that uh, it is just non-stop at the moment. It seems that uh, there's just so much going on. In um, We're seeing new crime every day. We're seeing the Queensland uh, youth crime, the gangland wars erupting. You must be the busiest journalist down there in, um, in Surrey Hills. Well, it has
0: been. The last two years, there was a little period there where the phone went every six weeks and a serious gangster had been been killed. And we literally, you know, you couldn't leave your phone alone because you just didn't know. And they're getting hit at 7.30 in the morning, shopping centres, gyms. I mean, it's like something you've never seen before. And as you said, compared to the 80s, when there was the gangland war still going on there, there's always been gangland wars. But this is just a different level. And I think it's the way it's played out publicly has made it so different.
1: Now, just on that, I mean, you've now seen, you've been in this business for 40 plus years. It's it's kind of incredible for a bloke that looks like he's 42. He must have been... you must have been born into it but um i guess a, a good place to start today is uh the recent news of course of Roger Rogerson's passing we 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 heard news that he'd suffered from a a brain aneurysm and was rushed to hospital and the old bugger still hung on for, hung on for another 36 hours he just seems to be so tough this uh, and, and doesn't want anyone to uh get in the way of the Rogerson idea he was going to die when he was ready how did you react when you heard the news ah uh-
0: it was a bit mixed because mixed emotions like roger died with a lot of secrets you know never he never told the truth he really didn't and i don't think you can underplay what he was um, up to and had been for for years and years so when he died and i've got to know him fairly well right up until he's he's arrested those last couple of years so um i was you know there's a touch of relief because the last time i saw him he stood up in court and went He was not very happy with me calling him a serial killer with a badge um so he he basically threatened to kill me and i even though he was a 73 year old man about to i knew was never going to get out of prison he still had that intimidation and that aura around him that when he threatened to kill you you got a little bit worried
1: well you you certainly should be worried shouldn't you i mean for most people we've read about it over a period of time we were entertained in many ways when that film that tv series blue murder came out in the mid 90s Uh, and we saw that, uh, you know, there's incredible performances in in that series and it was the, I guess it was the beginning of Richard Roxburgh's career. So there's always the the feeling that there's, um, you know, the the glamorous side of things. I mean, if if you look back and you know, movies, in Hollywood movies, The Godfather wins Best Picture, The the Godfather 2 is another Reno Academy Award winning film, Goodfellas comes out in the 90s, and it's always been sort of um, uh, glamorised, not even sensationalised, it just seems to be a way of life. So when Australia had its turn in the, mid-90s given that it was only a decade before all this sort of activity was going on it was being glamorized yet again uh, and, and so if you're in that business it, is it glamorous or is it just high pressure high intensity and you're really in the thick of it and you've got to live it out one way or another
0: yeah i wouldn't say it's glamorous to I, you know i'm very much peripheral you know i don't go hanging out with gangsters i know quite a few but i don't i don't get too immersed in their life but I did spend a lot of time with Roger and Rogerson and you'd go drinking with him. And and while I wouldn't say it's glamorous life, it's certainly really interesting. You know, it's you 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 get caught up. And even the cops, you know, some of the cops, their stories are just fascinating. Their life is, you know, what they what they come across. So, you know, I'd go out occasionally with Rogerson and it was like going out with a rock star. Like seriously, you'd be in a pub and people just wanted to come up all the time. Because he had reshaped his life uh let's face it, he was kicked out of the police force in 1986 um mm. which many people remember up and up until and then he by that time he had killed th- three people in the line of duty right yeah there's some suspicion as about that um but he had this and then he came back and even though he'd been jailed a couple of times he had remarketed himself as like a dirty harry like you know we thought he he kind of okay he he was a time he was a cop for the times you know he, he he broke the rules a little bit, but it was bad guys. It was you know it, they deserved it. It was a, a different time. Um, certainly, you know Sydney in the eighties was, and as I said, the, the state emblem should have been a brown paper bag because you could buy anything with a brown paper bag full of cash from judges to politicians to cops. You know,
1: now when you're trying to sort of become a journalist, you're, you're a cadet at this stage and you understand that the brown paper bag economy that's, you know, running the institutions of law enforcement in the country, how do you adapt to that process? Do you just put your head down and start writing, um, hoping that uh, the boss will approve what you do when it gets printed, or, or or do you just go with the flow? How do you sort of deal with that?
0: Well, you do. You, you, you evolve. You get your different contacts, and you've got to remember, in a way, I was quite a naive young guy, and, um, you know, as I said, I was, I, they put me into the crime reporting um, field when, one, they, we'd lost a couple of crime reporters, one <laughs> drank himself to death at a very, very early age, and it was almost part and parcel. And, you know, as I said, I was told, "Oh, you know, you've got to be claiming $100 a week drinking money. You know, that's why, to go out and drink with cops. Um, I actually just thought that it was all part and parcel. You'd go to bars, I'd go to the... the bourbon beef, and, you know, in King's Cross, drink downstairs with all these cops. And I just thought you didn't pay when you were with them. I was a young guy from the suburbs of Sydney, you know. <laughs> from a, a, you know not, a, not a not a wealthy family. I really, from you know, my father was an Italian and came over here and got his own business. And I just didn't realise. I had no idea. I wasn't a gambler. He wasn't. So that world, I just slowly, my naivety, took a long time for me to lose it, but I really did. I just, thought, oh, well, you're with policemen and, you go out drinking with these characters here, their stories. It's just part and parcel of life, you know. It was, and you, you know, I never paid a policeman ever. I never paid them cash, although I say, with you know, Roger, you never, you never paid for a drink. You were always paying, you know. Wow. So that was just the way it was, and you'd you'd go to some restaurants, and the bill would come you and you'd go, you know, there's ten of us. How come we're only paying eighty dollars? You know, and the journo's paid that eighty dollars. And it was still like a quarter of what we should have been paying.
1: Isn't that interesting? So it, it really has that sort of theme there of what we've seen in, in the films, the Goodfellas movies, et cetera, this, this, this separate economy, uh, this different world, almost Teflon-coated, if you will, uh, and the goodies and the baddies mixing together, you know, the cops, the gangsters, et cetera. And there's the journalists writing the stories in the beginning. When um, – this process goes on you haven't really met roger until much later but you you are writing about him is that how it sort of played out well
0: yeah i got sent out the first encounter with roger it was after he was out of the force and he got involved in a punch-up to you know uh over with a neighbor somebody you know some dispute and he, he came to help protect the guy so there was big news roger rogers and so i got sent out there and i was in his driveway and he came out of his old Ford Falcon about hundred kilometers an hour. And I've had to jump out of the way. Um, That was my first story about Roger Rogers. And he tried to run me over and it wasn't till, you know, early two thousands or something when I started seeing him regularly. And we would talk about that first encounter. And I said, you you know, you tried to run me over. He said, if I tried, you wouldn't be here, you know, (laughs) typical Roger. And um, so, yeah, well, I write bits and pieces about him. but as I said, he had he'd almost gone off the scene, you know. Um, I also became very close to Mick Drury, which kind of complicated things, because Roger was behind the shooting um, of trying to kill undercover cop Mick Drury. And uh, I'll give Mick Drury his, his due. He knew that I was um, socializing, mixing with Rogerson, And he he just knew that was part and parcel of my job, you know. Um, so it was it was funny. I was just about to get married in, in 2015 and Mick Drury was coming along. And at the same time, I was seeing Roger every few weeks and talking about the wedding, but um, he got banged up before that, which kind of made sure I didn't have to have the the unfortunate task of saying, Roger, you're not coming to my wedding, mainly because Mick Drury will be there and a whole lot of actually very honest policemen. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but if, even now, you talk, there are still guys now who say, you know, um, a, a little bit in awe of Roger, you know. You know, back they said he was he one he hell of a cop, but I think that was very much on the surface because I think he was dirty deep down. Always had been. I, mean, I don't go to this theory, you know. Take him to the dark side. Roger, Roger started on the dark side. Um, so he covered it very well.
1: That that's interesting, isn't it? That um that you have an assessment that you developed very early that uh, this guy was a bad guy wearing the good guy uniform. Uh, you wonder, therefore, what kind of motivation would it be? Because uh, what we've sort of learnt about Roger is that he wasn't necessarily a hoarder. He certainly didn't show it off. And as you mentioned there, his old Ford Falcon mm. uh, was a bit of a habit to drive these old bombs. Uh, he, he wasn't into sort of showing off. We saw, of course, in, in the films that uh, Nettie Smith's driving around in a brand-new, you know, S-Class Mercedes by comparison. Uh, no problem in, in sort of showing off. Roger had some assets and some, you know, holiday home or something like that, but obviously being very, very careful and didn't put his hand in his pocket either. So what was would have been the motivation, do you think? Was it just power? Was it just the fun of it? Was he just an outlaw? Yeah, I, I,
0: all of those, you, you just summed it up. And it wasn't an immediate thing I came to, uh, you know, when I first started. It wasn't until literally he'd been arrested and I had a boss, you know, in 2014. And here's Roger Rogerson being arrested, the age of 73, for killing a young young drug dealer. And he's kind of, what's behind this? And he basically I had a few months to dig around. And that's when I learned a different, like, the more I dug, the more I spoke to people and records found that he was a stone He was that, he was an outlaw. He was. He was just a crook, but it was the power, I think, and the power, and even to the, that day, to the murder that he finally went down for, you know, one of the young, I think that was relevancy. You know what? It just, you know, because no one could figure it out. Even the guys that I know who knew him quite well or had known him for a long time, they couldn't get their head around it. Um, none of us really could. What What are you doing Killing a young drug dealer, you know, who an unknown person, you know. So uh, yeah, he he fascinated me. And the more I don't the more I realised that he was just an outlaw. That it was about power, um, and I don't know whether it was just a good time or not. You know, he he loved having, he loved telling a story, he loved being the centre of attention in his own way. Um, and I think there were guys around that time, corrupt cops, who kept an even lower profile than Roger, but. Um, yeah, as you said, just an outlaw, just born born outlaw. He um, became very good at it and was very protected, you know, in the 70s, particularly, as I said, New South Wales. It, was, it hadn't grown up from its corrupt days from the Rum Rebellion. It just a legal casino. So it was a very exciting place to be, a young guy, you know. So um, uh, just to see the way it evolved, but Rogerson was um, he was the epitome of the corrupt court, the bad man, the hitman. He was everything
1: you know just just remarkable we're, we're going to head to our first break and when we come back we're going to dig a bit deeper mark just mentioned uh this uh, fellow jamie gower drug dealer who was murdered by roger rogerson it was a case that uh that all of us scratching our heads what would possess anyone uh, especially a 73 year old with every single camera and spotlight on him and yet he goes into a, into a, a a storage facility with cameras and decides to commit murder and there's no other way out of it. And uh, we'll explore that a little bit more after the break. But meanwhile, last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20 and twenty-one at the UK High Court to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he will be extradited to the United States. TNT Radio will be at the Royal Courts of Justice broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London, lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's
2: proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. to see protests shut down but obviously when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that you need to be dealt with i thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it mark morano on today's
1: news talk tnt in a democracy
0: the majority vote rules but in most democracies you can only vote for change every three or four years to understand what people want governments and political parties use focus groups these focus groups can include as little as 20 people australia is a country of over 25 million people does making decisions based on 20 people sound fair to you have your say be heard in between elections download the for my say app now that is number four my say If you're still wearing a cloth
1: or surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation.
0: It really is that simple.
1: Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. I'm with Mark Murray, Sydney crime reporter for The Daily Telegraph. Mark, the Jamie Gow story. as I said before the break, blew me away that it was just so obvious. You knew that this storage facility would be you know, covered in cameras mm-hmm. watching what was going on. And I'm wondering what possible motive was involved there. And the reason that I ask that is that um, we learn about this idea of a green light that Rogerson apparently tells Nettie Smith, it's been told in books and, and the film, et cetera. And I'm just wondering if he had this kind of regard that he still had this protective coating that he could get away with something. What did your uh, leads sort of deliver well
0: you know i've spent a lot of time digging around it. i said i got a phone i actually covered the press conference on the sunday saying there's this young guy missing called jamie gow and and i saw the coppers involved and i'm going this is not a missing kid you know this is they were talking foul place right away and then i get a phone call that night saying Rogerson's wanted for the murder of this kid and i, I just didn't believe it. i literally didn't believe it and about 24 hours later Yeah, you're right. There's actually a a warrant out for his arrest. It's a Sunday night. We wrote the story. And since then, I've just done so much digging around about that. Now, Jamie Gow was a young guy with delusions of grandeur. He wanted to be a gangster and uh, he had some some connections. And you've got to remember, Roger has been around Sydney 40-odd years, 50 years. He he knew the Chinese triads. Now, this was triad drug... Drugs that this young guy was doing, and it's it's documented. Uh, but he'd also Jamie Goud also had been spoken to by the Crime Commission, the Australian Crime Commission. Now there was a theory going around; they were worried that he might be talking. So the theory I have, and I have have you know shared it with quite some cops who were involved deeply in the investigation, that they basically some got hold of Roger and said, "We're worried about this kid. He's going to get these these three kilos now." Jamie had asked for 10 kilos, right, and then they only gave him three. And I think it was like, you're killing, you keep the drugs, because even Roger wouldn't steal from the triads. Roger's not that silly. And as I said, he knew him quite well. You'd be in Chinatown, and I spent an afternoon there where he was in it. This is the 2000s, and with having, there was another character there who I don't want to name, it's still alive, and Roger's there and in between, my, you know, our Dim sims and fried rice, he's literally running legal briefs. So people are coming down, sitting next to him, giving them their statement, saying, I've got a court appearance. And he was giving them legal advice. Uh, And that was in the heart of of Chinatown. So um, that's the theory that some people have. And they said, and there are police that are involved in it. Uh, Why he would do it? Why? You know, just, and again, you you were talking about the cameras. Now, I was talking to someone just recently who, who said, you've got to understand there was an informant. That's how come the police knew where it had been dropped. Mm. Otherwise, I mean, that's where they they didn't just go, gee, let's go and pick a storage facility where we think Jamie Gow went to. So there was there was inside information that helped them. Otherwise, they would have got there eventually because it, they wouldn't have known anything until a body popped up there off the shores of Cronulla. They wouldn't have had that CCTV they were able to start there. I can tell you now, the cops, when they got it, um, and they one of the guys who was watching, it, he's just gone because that link that gate is and he's gone, boss, you're not gonna believe this is, I think it's Roger Rogerson. And you, and at Florida, you know, some of the most experienced cops who would have been young men who were, and I know there were senior cops who said, We were in awe of Roger, and now they were going to have to go and lock him up. Um, so it. An amazing, as you said, it's just one of those stories that just doesn't keep stop, you know, stop getting new twists everywhere, you know. So well,
1: this is it, it's it's like you kind of had the um the goody and the baddie that Nettie Smith was the you know official baddie of the story. But Rogerson is really the bad guy in this because without Rogerson, Nettie Smith doesn't get his green light. Uh, the crime doesn't go on. He likely gets called, he gets you know arrested, charged, put away for some time. He doesn't get to uh, the, the whole murder of you know Sally Ann Huckstep in the found in in the pond there at Centennial Park. Um, it's it's a very very different scenario. And and when you look at it, you wonder was Rogerson even worse than the killer Nettie Smith himself?
0: Oh, I definitely think so. you got to think, you know, when people say Nettie and Roger, you know, and there was this, you know, things went uh, awry for, for Roger once he got mixed up with Smith. You look at the IQ of the two, I'm telling you, you know, there's Nettie, I've not had much to do. I've been near him once in a pub. He's not the world's brightest man. Whereas, you know, Roger had a, quite a high IQ, very smart and had an intellect. He wasn't led astray by Nettie Smith. He was he was the driving force, the puppet master for uh, of Ned, um, and you know, and you talked about Sally Ann Huckstep, the one we all forget about, and I didn't really know about, and was was her old flatmate, was a, a woman called Lynn Woodward, yes, who, Um just vanished, never got the headlines that Sally Ann did. Sally Ann, you've got to say, was incredibly brave in a lot of ways, um, which it led to her death, but. Uh, there are other people at Roger and disappearances we probably don't even know about that Roger and Nettie were involved in.
1: How did you discover the story of Lynn Woodward? I mean, it was obviously underreported, but you have then since reported on her.
0: In a big way. It, it goes back there was a, a uh, crime reporter who's now dead, Morgan Og, and he, he he was trying to dig around it. And that must have been in the nineties um, before the Royal Commission. And in fact, he ended up working for uh, the independent John Hatton, who actually pushed and got the Royal Commission, which really undid every, the whole New South Wales police force. And I just remembered this um, and he would since died and and I mentioned it and Mick Drury said, yeah I'll, yeah, there's a lot to it. Dig around and then I was lucky enough to to um, find Lynn's brother, Scott, and then a police officer called John Lacock, an assistant commissioner who, investigated Nettie, a lot of Nettie's murders. It was called Operation Snowy, which eventually they charged Nettie with about six or seven murders. He only went down for one or two. Uh, but that's what started me digging around Lynn Woodward. And then I found out that I think without doubt, she was killed by Nettie and Roger because she was making noise at at an inquest into the shooting of Warren Lanfranchi, who was an armed holdup merchant that Roger Supposedly killed when he pulled a, a gun that probably was, wouldn't be able to fire a bullet anyway. It was so old. So that was how it developed into looking at Lynn Woodward. And as I said, I think very much she should get some recognition for being attempted to be brave. And she it cost her her life. And, you know, five years later, we have the, the more high profile of Lynn Wood of um, Sally Ann Huckstedt. And Lynn Woodward came from a very, very good family. She, um, she was a model, very vivacious, and dress designer. A really smart lady who just fell in, you know, the bad boy, the bad boy image, you know. And uh, there's a whole generation doing it again now, which I'm seeing, who are enticed by social media, who are falling in love with these guys because they see these, again, they, they flaunt all their wealth, you know, and they have all this money. It's not dissimilar, but it just doesn't have the profile that it had back. You know, the profile that has now, a lot higher
1: that that's really interesting isn't it because it's almost like with social media that uh there's an abundance of anything that you want you just have to get out there and sort of search it and up comes a number of different options but obviously back then in the gangster days it's so uh, you have to get in in front of people in person a very different way to get involved in that uh, glamorous lifestyle there seems to be a um a recurring theme here in the crimes of rogerson and and, and the gangland etc is obviously to cover up their crimes, the destruction of evidence, the uh, the killing of the uh, whistleblowers slash witnesses. Um, does that lead you as a journalist when you see something like that? Is that sort of a, a red flag to say, okay, here we go, this is the pathway yet again? Do you start seeing patterns like that? Yeah, we
0: have seen that. Uh, there have been witnesses here that have been killed. There's one case I can't talk about at the moment, because the guy's still before the courts. Uh, he had a a crown witness taken out and killed, uh, and he was an, an innocent person. And so it's not like there are lots of other guys who uh, I believe there have been a few of them have been killed, not just out of revenge or because they stole money or because of the family feuds that we've been seeing, because there was a, a fear that they might talk. So that's why they were being killed. No bad guys, as you know. In that world, if was, if somebody thinks you're talking to law enforcement or anything like that just killed and i believe one of one of these gangland murders of one of the women um um the which is a big there was a, uh, unbelievable. she was a gangster herself a very rare breed of a female gangster and uh i think there were people that thought she may have spoken to law enforcement and that's why she was killed um so and then at the time that recently everyone said oh they don't kill that's amazing you know they don't normally kill women but we've seen sally ann haxton they did kill them in woodward they do kill women, and there's a lot of other um young women who died in suspicious circumstances under what was called the hot shot Mm. overdose with with heroin no it's just written off as an overdose but they were probably murdered because they were either going to talk or they were a liability or they couldn't be trusted
1: that's a, that's a huge story, the, the hot shot. I, I remember reading a, a couple of uh, people. One was uh, found dead in Marrickville, unrelated uh, crime there. But uh, it Another was mentioned. You... I beg your pardon? I think I know the
0: one you mean, but, you know, it's uh...
1: Yeah, yeah, an, int- an interesting story yet again, but it just seems to just follow the story. You know, a deal goes wrong, Someone's uh, wants to burn down a house or something like that, and the next thing you know, that person's found dead in a, in, in a sewer or something in Marrickville, hot shot in the arm. I mean, it's so obvious. The difference, I suppose, there is that, Mark, you get the smell you don't necessarily have the uh, the cops giving you the appropriate leads, evidence, et cetera. At what point does your reporting sort of say, well, I want to report on this, but I'm not necessarily getting the support from the police here, uh, so I'm out on my own? Does it? Do you have to make judgment calls in those circumstances to report on stories such as those to allege, therefore, that you might consider a hotshot murder has taken place?
0: Yeah, you do have it. And there was a the case, and it's still, again, a bikey who someone had tried to kill, Failed, and the next thing you know, he's found dead in his car from an overdose. People have been charged, and so they're still going before the court. So the hot shot isn't dead, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And you know, we theorised about that. Uh, You know, suicides. You know, there we have people uh, who you know who vanish or are just found dead under suspicious circumstances, or they're not. You know, the famous one where a a policeman was found off Tamarama. Where he supposedly committed suicide, and there was a rifle found in the water next to him in his hands, when tied behind his back. How did he? Anyway, that's uh, the, the, the 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 stage suicide, the hot shot, and the reporting of those. You've got to be very careful. Um, one because uh, uh, legally, but also there are a lot of fa- there's families involved, and it, it does get a bit murky. Um, I, I think we've got a police force now that is pretty truthful and transparent that they don't do any of the covering up or, and they're not lazy. There was, you know, we've seen with a lot of the gay hate murders of the eighties, it was lazy police work, very lazy. It wasn't, it wasn't corrupt. It was just lazy. That They just wanted to write these things off as suicide. Whereas now that doesn't happen. The checks and balances. Although there's still one or two, if I had a bit more time, I'd like to dig around of, of people who have been found, who have been written off as suicide that I think maybe if you dug around, you'd find more of it you need time
1: time for that oh no absolutely yeah do you find that in your profession a lifetime worth of work that you're there just to report or is there a process that um, perhaps you can influence the way that police work is done and, and and the way that crime is played out to perhaps contribute to a better society a better Sydney at least
0: well you hope you do um your job is always to be a reporter and and to report it as, as close down the line as you can. But I think it's up to us to to report how much the drugs are influencing. See, um, that you know if you think buying a few bags of cocaine, there's nothing wrong with it. There isn't, except for it. that is fueling a drug war that is having people shot, and they're not just killing crooks now, they're going into gyms and there's straight bullets going and hitting people. So I would hope that the more we report um, one, that we have an out, an outcome where people think twice about what they're doing. Young people maybe don't go into the life of crime. Um, I desperately hope that governments would say, we need to give law enforcement a lot more money because I mean, uh, we talk about the amount of drugs coming into the country and how we can't stop them, particularly like meth, it was such a destructive, horrible drug. And they're fighting international drug cartels with the budget of Coca-Cola, you know? And I would hope that we could start saying, well, we've got to start letting our guys, giving them a lot bigger budgets. They're going to be fighting drug cartels with the amount of money they build. In Mexico, they build their own networks, their own um, phone networks, so that they can't be listened into. They have their own towers, you know. And that's there's stuff like that starting to happen here because the money being made here is getting close to what we're seeing over there. We're, it's phenomenal. And you know, we go back to we go back to Rogerson's era. And what really escalated the corruption and the amount of money was heroin. That changed the rules. Like now, the amount of money being made from heroin sent a lot of people just couldn't resist the amount of money and the corruption that it it led to. And we're seeing a similar thing here with cocaine. The amount of money is just, it's off the charts.
1: Yes it's just incredible when you get a feeling for for how how it works and follow the money trail must be the other part of this of course that uh, when you're looking for the various different clues and you see it there uh you, you obviously talking about the the, the meth business um on top of that as well. It just seems to be a a never ending uh, story. We're going to go to the break in a couple of minutes. um, And I want to talk to you about uh, today's crimes, particularly Queensland youth and gangland wars as well. So I think it's probably a good time to ask you about uh, something that happened early on in your career, something that changed uh, the very uh, face of Sydney, the attitude and it was the Anita Cobby murder. Uh, And I understand that you were obviously quite young when that had happened. And it did affect you in a profound way. um, But you still remained a Crime reporter didn't scare you away from it, but how did that um, that case and and the murder of that poor lady uh, change you? It I learned a lot about empathy as well, like um, and I also learned about
0: police, and it was said, it was a big part of, of of my early career. I'd only been a reporter for um, five six years, so but going along, and I had a lot to do with um, with Anita Cobby's. Uh, parents and as you said it was the most brutal brutal murder and i was exposed to like i was outside blacktown police station when they brought in the some of the murphy brothers who and, and travis who'd been charged with the murder they were there were four or five hundred people They were rocking the car outside Blacktown. so you, you it was this amazing thing about exposed to news and how it can affect society you saw that the grief of the parents, you saw the 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 absolute dedication obsession of some of the police officers who became like friends um, who worked on that case. So, it, it, in a way, it gave me a, a taste, and I, I, I kind of got addicted to it. It was, you know, and, and seen a great outcome from an evil deed. And as you said, I hate to say it, the Anita Cobby murder is almost a trademark for Australian murder. It is yeah. still... The one that resonates nearly, you know, 40 years later, there are young nurses that know the name and need a copy. Um, four of the five killers are still alive, And as I said, John Cobb, her husband, who I know quite well, whenever I ring him, he says, I'm hoping you're telling me that one more is dead. Um, and it's not, unfortunately, it would be about the footy or something. And he said, okay, well, maybe next call it a bit. And he said, so, yeah, it had a profound effect on me. It taught me a lot. Um, and even to this day, it still affects me, you know, in some ways. When you think about Anita and um, covering that story, and then years later, the post mortem and seeing the photos of Anita, it still, it still cuts, cuts to the bone. And and, and knowing what it did to some of those police officers, and I've seen the photos, and my up I actually saw Anita's body in the paddock, and uh, I know what it did to them. And no matter how tough, they're still, you know, they. One or two of them have died and I, I know that, that um to the to the gray that uh, Anita Cobby is the one image that they probably would take and still would be thinking about even when they're dying because it was just something you can never get out of your head.
1: I um I just find it just impossible to be able to comprehend that some almost forty years later you still are emotional despite uh obviously in your line of work developing probably the thickest skin of anyone in in the business uh dealing with crime on a daily basis so it's just profound as i said before that uh, that it can change a person but to still make you determined and those police officers the same way probably to make them all better cops at, this, at the same time and uh and only for uh, the relationship to to go on for for four decades and, and still in touch with john cobby whose only wish is to find out that another is uh, never to take another breath and have any influence on society. It's just an incredible, incredible story. We're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk to Mark a little bit more about what's happening right now. I do want to get his take perhaps on what happened with Rogerson when he was in jail um, and, and maybe how Mark was there and speaking to him and just the reaction of how this man even existed in prison in his 70s, just whether he was some sort of thought he was a rock star or maybe he ran out of people that actually liked him and then he thought that he might as well mix with the people that he had become a crim himself it's just a, a an amazing story and uh, we'll take that break and we'll come back with more here on weekends on tnt radio de-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective i really don't
2: understand how this trial between michael mann and mark stein is continuing and i don't know if dr mann wanted to put his hockey stick on trial. There are so many holes in his argument, it is hard to believe. I don't even understand how people could have let that out without questioning it. And I've talked about this before. One of the biggest problems I have is he won't let anyone look at his data, at least no one that is skeptical of his data. And that should raise red flags. Now, I've talked about this Many, many times, you can go and look at what the global temperature does. When it's warm in the eastern and central part of the United States and warm across Europe, usually the global temperature is elevated. Now, when it's cold in those areas, believe it or not, the global temperature is actually colder. The problem with his whole hockey stick and the recreation of temperatures from pine cones is, the areas he looks at and draws his ideas from are usually cold when the earth is warm. So he would not be able to detect that. He would not know that because he's not a meteorologist. If he was a meteorologist, would he know it? Of course he'd know it because we talk about this all the time. They're called teleconnections. So if I were in there talking about this, I'd be asking where is your meteorology background and are you aware of this going on? But in any case, this whole hockey stick idea of temperature recreation looks to be more of a hokey stick to a lot of us out there. And the first red flag is, you wouldn't let anyone look at your data. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Meet Norm. He lives with anxiety. But with the help of this latest innovation from Be Normal, he can be normal, just like everyone else. With the swipe of a finger, you can project happiness confidence machismo why settle for being real when you can be normal the normal maker new from be normal this item doesn't really work because there's no such thing as normal we're all different what we like how our brains work in fact one in five of us live with mental illness don't filter who you are start by talking to someone you trust and remember there is no
0: normal when you need to know what's going on
1: around the world Stay with weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to weekends. My guest this hour, Sydney crime reporter for the Daily Telegraph, Mark Mori. Mark, did you have an opportunity to run into Roger Rogerson when he was in jail serving time for murder?
0: I did. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't actually go and visit him, but I, I was actually going through Silverwater and ran into him, and he yelled out and said, sick today. And then another time um, there was a. A private court hearing Roger was brought up Now, this is when the court was empty and no one was there and it was funny the sheriff who brought him up actually was a detective retired who was the lead detective on the Anita Colby case a small city. and Roger's mm-hmm. cut and we're in this Darlinghurst court and it's Speed Kennedy, the sheriff officer bringing him up, Roger and myself. and I've gone there and no one went there because you weren't allowed to report these proceedings but I went there out of it. I went over and had a chat to Roger, you know, and that was before I called him a serial killer with a badge, and we were on talking talking terms. And he was quite affable, always very affable, always put on this great front. But I know he didn't like jail. Uh, like we talked about it a lot because before he got locked up for Jamie Gow, he did two other stints in 1990 and again in the early 2000s, and uh, he we talked about it. You know, he he, he talked about oh, that jail's not too bad. Berrimer he liked. Um, and he said there was a lot, he had a lot of freedom, very could go outside. He said, I didn't like Kuma, It was so bloody cold. He said that was freezing. Um, so what the, What they did to Roger when, he, when they sentenced him, it was very, very clever because they put him basically in a dementia unit, like it was the, right, like a, a wing for, for, for frail old prisoners or prison, and Roger wasn't anything like that. But they didn't want him in general population being a, a hero and holding court, like he had done when he had been before. Mm. Right? Um, because Roger was the, the crook of crooks, you know, he was the dirty cop. And and he had so many connections that were unbelievable. So they put him there where that would have been really, he would have hated that. Because he couldn't he would have been with people he wouldn't be able to converse with, because he loved telling stories or hearing. So those last few years would have been whole. He spent the last, you know, nearly 10 years in in an ward surrounded by people who weren't uh, compass mentors. and that was that was deliberate by the the jail authorities to make him suffer you know
1: so it's i actually- don't mm. I was just going to say, so at long last, he actually has to pay for his crimes. He's no longer uh, holding court. He's not the rock star, the superstar or whatever. It almost, it's, it's, it seems like if you're going to make a movie about this part of his life, it'd be something like Robin Williams in uh, in Patch Adams at the beginning of that film. Uh, it, that's where he's sort of left to his, his own devices. And then, of course, um, two weeks ago, give or take, uh, he has a brain aneurysm and uh and still lasts another 36 hours but that was the uh the final demise of roger was there much of a reaction from his uh from his family at that stage or was it kind of there at the same thing that uh he's, he's locked away for the rest of his life that's it
0: that he didn't have, like his uh his first wife had nothing to do with him over the last few years I think his daughters he had two very very limited uh especially after you know, I think up until the, the 2014 shooting, th- there are a lot of people wiped. Roger, um, I know his brother visited him in, the, in those last few days. His brother, who was also a policeman, a very very honest policeman, um, but suffered because of the reputation of his brother. So I think he he, he would have been fairly lonely. His wife Anne, that second wife, didn't hadn't visited him a hell of a lot at all. She'd moved down to. Um, south coast of New South Wales. So I think he would have had some pretty lonely last few years. And in those last couple of weeks, it's, it, you know, those last 36 hours, I think a couple of people wouldn't said goodbye to him. But really, um, he he had been wiped by a lot of people because, you know, it's one thing, I, I think, the people he, he killed publicly, the, you know, the, the gangsters and that, but this was a 20-year-old kid and, the other thing that Roger would hate was how stupid he looked being caught on CCTV. Every so, I think he would have it would have been a, a humiliating last few years. Um, as I said, I wasn't exactly on his visitors list after what I'd done, so I didn't, you know, I didn't get much time. Like so, we he let's hope that it was really kind of a horrible end. Because in the end, as much as I like Roger, in fact, I felt terrible. I felt like I betrayed him when I wrote this expose on him. That's how how good he was, you know, at, mm. at convincing you that he was, oh, yeah, I was a bit of a bad guy. Yeah. And I felt like I'd betrayed him, but, you know, and what I'd uncovered is he was a cold-blooded murderer and a murderer of innocent people. Mm. He wasn't just ripping off and killing drug dealers. He was ripping off. You know, Lynn Woodward's the one that really sticks to me. And, and even though he didn't kill Sally, and he was definitely knew it was going to happen. So um, So, yeah, that's how good he was. He, he had sympathy for a killer, a serial killer.
1: Yeah. yeah
0: remarkable thought... isn't
1: it and, <laughs> the, and the fact mark that you can talk about that part of your job was drinking with Roger Rogerson I mean it was part of the part of how it worked I mean oh comes forward in 2024 I, I would assume that this just doesn't happen anymore
0: and, uh, well no not the the ingrained drinking of the 80s and early 90s is definitely gone you do still I still see um officers and we catch up for a few beers here and there but, um, one, they're breath-tested, whereas before you use the, 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 the homicide locker room in the old um, Criminal Investigation Bureau, as it was called, there was a fridge full of VBs. And you go to lunch for six hours and then you go at a restaurant where, as I said, you, you didn't pay a real lot. Um, but that culture has is, is certainly died out. The the mixing of journalists and, and crime reports still goes on. It's beneficial. They really... They need crime reporters a lot of the time. They need to get publicity for some crimes. They need, and they also need us to go out there and show that the cops are out there trying to protect the community. So that relationship's there, but it's a lot more. So, no, having said that, I still might catch up for a few beers and at the odd long function, and especially retirement functions for for officers. That's when you you see a lot of guys and you catch up and you hear some of the some of the best stories you can ever report.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, the Queensland youth crime that's going on at the moment, it seems to be ongoing. It threatens to bring down the Labor government uh, when the election comes up uh, this year, I think. Uh, What do you see when you're looking at that? What is the underlying problem that you're seeing there that's just not being addressed?
0: It goes on everywhere. Let's not kid ourselves that it's unique to, to Queensland. Uh, a lot of it comes down to the court system, the bail law. And, and I'm and i not a sociologist either because there has to be something, you know. I, I know that the, a lot of these guys that who get caught doing these serious crimes, you will find that they've been let out time and time and time again. I know I constantly get cops ringing me and saying, you lock these guys up for knife crime, violence, um, and they're they just giving bail because they're 14, 15 just repeatedly and then they go out and do it again and they get bail again uh so i think we need to address that we really need to say that the minute someone comes into the court system for a violent crime let's start working on them really hard really hard uh whereas i think we're finding they're just let back out to keep going and mix again with the same people Um, i mean what we saw in queensland is just devastating you know but We've had We've got it here in Sydney. We've had what we call the postcode groups. We've got sixteen-year-olds going around
1: killing each other because they come from the wrong suburb. Now that's that's terrible. Now to describe that is that a form of like some sort of postcode ghetto or something? Is it immigrant-related? It related? It's very much,
0: and it's driven, you know, uh, by um, rap music. Um, it's almost that that LA-style gang war, the Bloods, yes. the Crips. But we do. We have we have had probably ten in the last two three years young men, many of them teenagers, predominantly that uh, identify with being part of a postcode, uh, and being involved in, in 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 fights and brawls that have ended up with deaths of young men. We had one at the Easter Show, in, you know, a young man in front of two three hundred people, nine o'clock in the Royal Easter Show. And that was in relation, you know, that's going to be alleged that it was part of association because of postcode books. So what we're seeing in Queensland, what we've been seeing in Alice Springs, uh, all these youth crime—it's it, a—it's a major problem that we need to address. I, I don't nationally, obviously, you know, we can't just say, "Well, Queensland sorted out," New South Wales, Alice Springs. You know, I mean, every, each each state seems to be driven by something different, whether it's alcohol boredom or you know there's a problem perhaps with some young Sudanese in certain parts we have that here in sydney where we have you know and we're not picking on the Sudanese because it's generationally displaced um youths from minority groups for all time you know and we've seen it with our middle eastern um okay we've seen it with the young Vietnamese, we had the most violent street gang here in Sydney. It was the 15 in the 90s. Like, you know, they and they were 14, 15-year-old killers that carried machetes. And we're seeing that happening again now uh, with some of the young Sudanese. And there's some very you know, great people in the population doing some great work um, in the African community. But there are some hardcore there. Well, I, I don't know how, how we address it. Sydney when we saw a few Sudanese gangs doing swarming uh, robberies they sent raptor on there the bikie squad they didn't use the juvenile crime squad they used the gang squad to to crack down on them. and i don't know whether you need to go and do that up there in queensland and really address that sort of gang youth violence really hard and we we're doing it now with the with our postcode gangs you know mm. without sending social workers we're we're sending the heavy artillery and that's when that they're starting to win new south wales police but you know civil libertarians won't like it a lot of the time
1: this is it and this is a really good point and i'm wondering that um many people have forecast that these types of events would take place uh, therefore it's foreseeable do you think that there's a reason why perhaps politicians don't foresee this or that they're willingly turning a blind eye to i suppose you know play down a, a certain pathway whether it's wokeism or civil libertarians to give everyone a fair go do you ever think consider th- maybe a bigger picture here why it's happening why it's allowed to happen i should say i think you're talking it, it, about the
0: politicians are scared about upsetting vocal but small groups who aren't really across the whole problem you know what i mean and they they're having enormous influence on politicians who let's face it they're only thinking about votes you know um they're scared of losing votes but what they've got to think about you're going to lose a lot of votes when you start losing people getting killed in the streets and violence so and then but by then it's too late you haven't taken those. preventative measures that I'm saying that maybe are politically unpalatable, that maybe are not going to make a whole lot of people in this modern world very happy saying you're not allowed to do that. You've got to take some hard decisions. You know, I don't want to sound like extremes right wing, but it's, I just think that we have to fight some of these these problems very early on, stomp on them before they get out of control because you know, we've got we've got very liberal courts here, just as I said, just yeah. letting these guys go out on bail and bail and bail. And then you're finding, I don't know how many cases. I mean, I've seen people getting bailed. In this gang war, there was a two, there was an 18-year-old in in the midst of the gang war, caught with a gang, given bail the next day. He's caught with a gun. And he's given bail. And two weeks later he's dead, shot dead. Right? Because he'd been involved. So you know the courts have got a lot to answer for, and the politicians are the ones supposedly running that. And I think they they've got to start going. Let's jump on this early. Let's not wait until it's let's not wait until the person's out for the seventh time on bail and stabbing someone.
1: Well, this is it, and and you consider it, and it's it, it seems to be, you know, the, the the talk of the day that you you can't criticise or is she deemed racist something like that. But if you consider a young Sudanese kid that comes over with his family, that's brought up in poverty and perhaps rent or whatever you do to live cost you $5 a week in Sudan, you know, in that currency, you come to Australia and all of a sudden it costs you 600 bucks a week to rent a house uh, in outer Western Sydney or, or, or somewhere else. And uh, you still got to contribute to society. you got to go to school. You've got to do all those things, but you uh, have a lot of lack still. Now, there's welfare, et cetera, and things that are offered, uh, but it still doesn't meet the bills. And you would have to think that there'd have to be some importation of culture of how things were done back in the old country that are transferring to the new mm-hmm. and that's the part I think that the, this nuance that it's 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 glossed over uh, that's disappointing in, in this approach and you do wonder uh, when it's manipulated so that 14 and 15 year olds are the assassins doing the dirty work for uh, for the higher-ups that uh, again being used and you think that there's got to be a better way in all of this that, uh, that we can uh, create the Australia that we want um, uh, in the image of the Australia that it was it's not a bad thing to look back in the past to say things weren't as bad as they were and we don't necessarily just have to open the doors open and accept everything i think that's the 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 part that we all look at i've just looked at the clock mark and we've unfortunately we've run out of time (laughs) but um um, i just want to say um thank you for the time today i also want to mention that uh, you've got a a series coming up at the at the uh, daily telegraph uh the war kill or be killed which i think launches um next week uh that looks pretty exciting it's a is is it a a podcast series no it's actually
0: uh a mini documentary, like, a, you know, four or six, 15-minute episodes that we put out over the next uh, the next few weeks, and we still kind of cut it on the run. The last time we did this, there were people being, we'd have to redo episodes because somebody got
1: shot in the middle of an episode, and we'd have to <laughs> up.
0: Um Let's hope it doesn't happen again, because we've got plenty of dead people anyway, so,
1: yeah. In, indeed. Mark Morrie, thank you for your time on today's good. show. Really appreciate it. We're going to take Go a break. It and uh, have news and coming up after the news my next guest professor ian Plum, will be joining us you've been watching and are still watching uh, weekends with jason hall here on tnt radio